This is AWLS, Podcasts on Wilderness Medicine, from the University of Utah School of Medicine. Hi, this is Richard Ingebretson with the University of Utah School of Medicine. Uh, we want to talk about uh, legal concerns in the wilderness. This uh, is an area that's not well-defined. Law Laws have really not been well uh, uh, described to talk about what happens when people encounter things specifically in the wilderness. However, there's a lot of law that will help guide us and uh, will protect people uh, if they do provide aid in the backcountry. Medical professionals are directed by national and international associations to provide emergency medical care in almost any condition. Uh, the uh, uh, the World Medical Association International Code of Me- Medical Ethics actually says a physician shall give emergency care as a humanitarian duty. Um, but the most important aspect of treating a patient in the wilderness is providing optimal care in any one of a variety of situations. Now, we live in a litigious world, and so concerns about legal liability are always a concern of anybody, whether they're a medical uh, provider or not, but who's uh, have has uh, well meanings in their care. The liability concerns can be eliminated completely or certainly reduced by understanding and following a few uh, legal principles. Um, uh, remember, uh, the Good Samaritan laws are are the most important laws that we're going to talk about. But the goal of laws provides certainty and predictability in order uh, for citizens to conduct themselves uh, properly. The, uh, I mentioned uh, the Good Samaritan laws, and those are really the foundation of appropriate care. Um, the Good Samaritan laws have an intended purpose. And uh, when citizens uh, have an emergent injury, society wants to encourage these people with any kind of ability to help and render uh, aid uh, to do so. Uh, the law provides liability protection uh, to remove the deterrent of litigation as long as someone is not, uh, you know, grossly negligent. Uh, there are different laws all around the world in the United States. In the United States, the most extreme reactions to the common law rule, uh, the Good Samaritan laws, are found in uh, Minnesota, uh, Rhode Island, and uh, Vermont, uh, where each of these states has enacted a statute requiring a person to render aid under certain uh, conditions to a stranger found in an emergency situation. Fines may actually be imposed if uh, there is failure to uh, render aid. Uh, And in the province of Quebec in Canada, and also in every country on the European continent, similar statutory uh, requirements have been enacted. So when traveling in the backcountry in Europe, Quebec, Minnesota, Rhode Island, Vermont, remember that uh, you're obligated to give reasonable aid and assistance to a stranger suffering or exposed to great physical harm or otherwise, uh, you know, uh, found in an emergency situation. Depending upon the circumstances of particular jurisdiction's law, uh, that obligation may be satisfied by immediately reporting the situation to uh, proper authorities who then can provide help and aid to the victim. Uh, the jurisdictions that do impose a firm affirmative obligation to register emergency care also have a limitation of liability statute uh, to, to protect those people uh, as well. For a provider uh, to be protected, 
under these Good Samaritan uh, laws and Good Samaritan doctrine in any jurisdiction uh, in Canada or Europe or United States, there are five general guidelines that must be met. The first one is this. The person rendering emergency care must not have caused the emergency, either in whole uh, or in part. An example of that would be if you uh, ran over somebody or if you caused somebody to fall off a cliff, then you're not protected from being litigated against uh, the injury and the outcome because you caused it. Uh, the second guideline is the person rendering emergency care uh, must act in what they say is good faith. That means the care provider must sincerely intend to help and must have a reasonable opinion that the care should not be postponed until the patient is hospitalized. Um, the third uh, uh, guideline that needs to be followed is that the emergency care must be provided gratuitously uh, without any compensation. What this means is, is that the care provider should not accept anything in return for rendering the emergency care. Uh, you can never send a bill for the services if you intend to utilize the Good Samaritan Law. The, uh, the fourth tenet or guideline is that the provider must not commit, uh, and the word they use is gross negligence when rendering emergency care. To list all possible acts or omissions that might constitute uh, gross negligence is, is really impossible. Uh, however, uh, once uh, initiating emergency aid in the back country, and then either terminating treatment or transferring care of the patient to an inadequately trained person before the patient is adequately stabilized or evacuated to a medical facility can be considered abandonment, which is considered uh, gross negligent. The fifth guideline is the person rendering emergency care must not have a pre-existing duty to care for the patient. For example, a guide would have a pre-existing duty to render emergency care to a customer where that customer had contracted with the guide to be taken on a hike and the guide had agreed to provide care to the customer in case of an injury. In this situation, Good Samaritan laws would not apply uh, to the guide in the event the injury happened to that customer, say, during a hike. There are nuances uh, to the Good Samaritan laws uh, in uh, many, many different jurisdictions, and it's wise just to know what those are. For example, the Pennsylvania Good Samaritan law uh, covers only those who have received some training in first aid, and then only to that extent that they're trained. And now the courts in certain other states have suggested that Good Samaritan law protection apply only if the care that is given is limited to that necessary at the emergency scene. Consequently, in a backcountry emergency, a person might decide to render only such aid as one is competent to provide, and then only to the extent required at the scene. Now, many states don't allow uh, good cement laws to apply uh, in a hospital setting, as the environment uh, provides the resources and all the medical personnel that is accepted medical care. In those cases, a higher standard of care may be present if the care uh, is provided with the resources of the emergency medical system and its equipment and so forth. Um, and any one of those five conditions is not uh, satisfied, then the Good Samaritan Law, with all of its protections, will not apply. Uh, while there are many ways in which these principles can be violated, 
such as inadvertently accepting payment or rendering aid in a clumsy manner amounting to gross negligence, the most frequent violation arises from the presence of a pre-existing duty on the part of the caregiver uh, to provide uh, uh, aid to the patient, uh, usually from a guide. A pre-existing duty usually exists because of contract law. Now, contract law is, uh, is another level of care. Uh, a contract is an agreement. Uh, it's basically a promise between two uh, or more parties for performing or not uh, performing specified acts in exchange for adequate uh, consideration. To be a legally binding contract, there has to be uh, three elements, and you should know these. One is an offer, two is the acceptance of the offer, and three, some form of consideration has to be exchanged. Uh, consideration uh, is defined as any benefit or item of value received by the parties that reasonably and fairly induces them to enter that contract. Contracts can be either expressed or uh, they can be implied in fact is the term that they use. The terms of an express contract are explicitly stated in words, usually written, but sometimes they can just be spoken between two people. Now, there's also an implied contract that is not expressly set forth, either orally or it can be in writing. So the existence in terms of an implied contract are created by conduct or maybe the circumstances that imply in fact a contract exists. If someone leaves um, food or milk at a doorstep and then the other party leaves an envelope with payment, even though there may not be a formal contract, both parties are behaving like there uh, is a contract in place. So contract, letter agreements, and even brochures for summer camps, outings, river trips, expedition companies, adventure guides, sometimes will uh, very expressly state they have a trained uh, person to provide medical care to customers if an emergency arises during that uh, you know, adventure activity. Alternately, the oral uh, uh, sales presentation or even the brochure may well imply that the expedition of the summer camp company or the adventure guide will provide such care uh, to customers that are with them. Whether it's expressed or maybe it's implied, a court may find that the complaining customer stayed at the camp or took that expedition in part because the company guide contractually agreed to provide medical aid during the emergency. Thereby, a pre-existing duty on the part of the company or guide will exist. The Good Samaritan laws will not be a protection from liability. If the Good Samaritan law does not apply because of the principles are broken, then litigation could be possible uh, thereafter. Uh, and that is something you want to be uh, careful with if you're having any kind of formal rela relationship uh, with people in your backcountry expedition. So if there ends up being a problem and uh, lawsuits ensue, they fall under the category of what is called tort law. Uh, tort law sets civil standards for people's behavior, uh, sort of imposing on everybody the duty to exercise reasonable care, to avoid causing harm or injury to others, and providing legal resource and the possible recovery of money, damages, and so forth for those who suffer harm or injury as a result of the breach of this duty. Uh, torts are legally defined civil and often non-criminal wrongs that might result in harm or injury and then would constitute basis of a claim or a lawsuit by the harmed or injured party against the person who had allegedly committed uh, the act or tort. An injured party can uh, claim under any three 
general categories of tort. An intentional one, uh, what they call a strict liability tort, making or selling obviously defective products, and a negligent tort, which is a careless and unintentional act, such as an automobile accident, which harms or uh, injures another person or another person's property. So among harms or injuries suffered by a party where they could recover monetary award in a tort litigation are things like lost income, lost damaged property, pain and suffering is one that is really commonly used, uh, and then reasonable medical expenses. Although a person allegedly harmed or injured uh, when receiving emergency aid in the back country might conceivably claim an intentional court, most often lawsuits arising from such circumstances claim that the tort of negligence occurred. And in order to provide that a person who provided emergency Medicare in the back country committed a negligence, uh, the person who claims to have been harmed or injured uh, by that medical care, when we call those the plaintiff, must pr- uh, prove the fa- these uh, four uh, elements of a negligent claim. The first of these uh, elements is um, uh, th- there is a duty to provide care at the standard of care. So in, in, in this uh, uh, first of the elements, the plaintiff has to demonstrate that the defendant, first of all, had a duty to provide aid to the plaintiff, which met a specific standard. Uh, normally, a healthcare provider will not be held to have been negligent if good care is given in accordance with the prevailing standard of the medical profession. So this becomes a big issue. Uh, what are the prevailing standards? And this is where expert witnesses and um, people are called in to, uh, to testify uh, uh, what is the standard of care. Uh, there's a lot of training courses that are making great progress in defining and refining the standard of the care in wilderness medicine, but that standard is not yet well established in the law, uh, although there are cases. So when in doubts, courts usually rely upon uh, what is considered to be the more traditional legal definition of the standard of care, which is generally uh, the behavior of a reasonably prudent person in the same or similar circumstances. So in applying that legal definition, courts will look at things like the defendant's training, education, uh, organizational practices that apply to that situation, an industry practice, or a private business practice. So if, if there is a duty to provide aid meeting a specific standard of care, that also generally requires the informed consent of the patient to obtain before uh, care is given. And if it's a minor, then it's a parent uh, or a guardian that will provide that. So if there is a duty to provide care at a certain standard of care, then the second element of a, uh, a tort claim is there has to be failure to perform that duty. So that then becomes the plaintiff has to prove that the, defend, the defendant failed to perform a duty of providing aid consistent with specific standard of care. That proof can take a number of forms. In wilderness medicine uh, litigations, um, the plaintiff asserts the defendant failed to act at all. That's called an omission. And that becomes the most standard problem is uh, when the defendant had a pre-existing duty to provide care to a plaintiff and then then did not. The plaintiff, however, may claim the defendant provided 
care that did not meet the prevailing medical standard, uh, and especially the defendant's background, education, and training. The premature termination of care or abandonment, as we mentioned a while ago, of care or the transfer of care to a less qualified provider before the patient has been stabilized or evacuated can be considered abandonment and constitute negligence or even gross negligence. And that means that um, you have to remain well-informed of prevailing medical standards, protocols, and be well-trained in wilderness medicine to ensure that any care uh, provided meets the applicable standard. The third element in tort law is there has to be a loss or an injury. The plaintiff must demonstrate that he or she sustained a loss, which can include damage to property, uh, fright, emotional trauma, personal injury, pain, suffering, loss of life. Uh, and that becomes, a, uh, you can look and see if there is a loss. It's debatable sometimes. And then finally is the term uh, causation. Uh, that means that the plaintiff has to demonstrate that the loss or the injury sustained was caused or at least contributed to by the defendant's failure to perform the duty of providing aid meeting the, uh, the specific standard of care. They call this proximate cause. So uh, the defendant can defeat a, a plaintiff's claim by demonstrating that the plaintiff failed to carry the burden of proof on any one or more of those four elements of a, of a negligent claim. Uh, for example, the defendant, the defendant might demonstrate uh, he or she satisfied the duty of performing in accordance with the applicable standard of care or that the plaintiff's loss or injury was caused by another person or event. The best strategy is always to keep uh, complete and accurate uh, records of the event surrounding the event. Uh, and so if something happens in the backcountry, memorialize it by writing it down. Put dates, times, histories, a description of the scene, physical assessment, any data that would support what you're doing. Experience has taught that these records are very, 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 very successful. Another consideration which, with regards to the law and wilderness uh, medicine would involve jurisdiction. It's important for a provider to understand if there is any legal action under what laws the issue will be argued. Laws can uh, widely vary from county to county and even state to state, Knowing ahead of time what the jurisdiction is will allow for you know maximum protection against litigation and multiple uh, conduct. Uh, the jurisdiction may be spelled out in the contract agreement when it is signed uh, uh, before the journey starts. For example, a statement such as both parties agree that any litigation will utilize the laws of, say, California in resolving a dispute. Otherwise, a trek in Utah with a customer from Nevada using a company in Arizona may uh, lead uh, to uh, the door open for an argument in which in any of those jurisdictions where laws apply. One thing you might do to make sure that you keep uh, 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 notes is um, uh, consider uh, malpractice insurance or some kind of insurance that you have for you or your uh, group uh, just to protect yourself in case there is something uh, the law in the wilderness, while not well-defined, it is well-defined uh, when uh, in non-wilderness situations, and those are the, the laws and the examples that are used to guide us. Remember the Good Samaritan laws, remember contract law, and remember tort law as you uh, go into the wilderness to help protect you. Well, thanks for listening. This ends the um, uh, podcast on the legal aspects of wilderness medicine. Mm-hmm.